On today's episode, I'm joined by a ProPublica investigative journalist who has conducted groundbreaking reporting on toxic uranium ghost towns in America. He goes into detail about the public health hazards caused by the uranium mining industry, how the nuclear arms race may have led to irreversible consequences for local communities, and why the state of journalism is facing an existential crisis. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Mark Olalde, and this is Uncovering the Truth. Mark, I just wanted to ask and start out by you know, what was the catalyst that compelled you to dedicate a year of your life to breaking this story about uranium ghost towns in New Mexico? And also, if you don't mind explaining, what is a uranium ghost town? Absolutely. Uh, you know, for me, um, a lot of my work is focused on frontline communities that are uh, living adjacent to uh, beside on top of around kind of heavy extractive industries. And so uh, when I caught wind of a company that was literally tearing a town down and moving hundreds of people away, uh, as opposed to dealing with years and years of water contamination and uh, public health concerns about cancer and things like that, uh, it seemed like an obvious thing that that needed more attention. Um, and so, you know, this was a, a, a vibrant community that was kind of disappearing uh, in the face of a, of a uranium mill. Um, and so, yeah, this, this the story here was as as the uh, as the U.S. shifts away from from uranium, as the the nuclear industry doesn't uh, doesn't seem to potentially have a, a massive kind of domestic uh, resurgence on on the horizon. We have to figure out what do we do with all this old with all this old infrastructure. And so uh, we just set out to investigate all of the former conventional uranium mills in the U.S. and uh, and learn how the cleanup process is going. Uh, if it's happening properly, if people's health are being protected. Uh, and we focus on one site called Homestake in Northwest New Mexico, where, uh, like you said, a, a ghost town is kind of in the making as, as the cleanup effort uh, removes a community. Wow. And so obviously from your investigations, you found that this was not being handled properly and that they were not, instead of removing the uranium, they had kept it in this town and it has decimated not only the the population but the community as a whole so yeah what you've got is is uh mill waste so when you bring in the the raw uranium ore uh, you crush it up you grind it up you put it through a chemical process um and and what you come out with is yellow cake which is kind of the next step of the of the cycle and so What's left behind, though, is is what's what's known as tailings. It's kind of like sand, um, mm -hmm. and it is full of of kind of the leftover stuff. It's it's got chemicals, it's got heavy metals, it's got all sorts of stuff in it that you don't want to to be breathing or, or drinking in your water. And at this site, there's 22.2 million tons of it sitting out there. Uh, there are a little a little north of 50 of, of these kind of sites around the country we've identified. And the way the regulatory system works oh. is is it to be able to be done with this, the Department of Energy will take on the liability and monitoring mm -hmm. and maintaining this stuff forever. But the company has to get it to a point where it's no longer impacting uh, human health. It's no longer kind of a concern. And right. so the company here had a, had a decision to make. Do we move the waste so it's not impacting the people or do we move the people so they're not getting impacted by the waste? And they decided it was going to be cheaper to get, get everyone out of there. 
And so when you mean move the people, this is exactly what you reported about the company Homestake Mining Company, along with their parent company, Barrick, has offered to purchase the homes of the locals there, correct? This way they can remove them and then claim, oh, look, it's not damaging anybody because nobody lives there anymore. And, and correct me if I'm wrong here, they are lowballing the residents when they offer to purchase their homes. So what happened in the purchasing process is it started out relatively fair. Uh, they get independent appraisers to come out to the homes and say, you know, here's market value. Uh, the problem is that started before the pandemic hit. And once the pandemic hit, housing went nuts and uh, mm -hmm. supply chains went nuts. So the cost of wood to build a new house, for example, or you know, a, a backhoe to rent to dig out a new septic tank or anything like that just absolutely skyrocketed. And uh, housing all over the West is getting snapped up. And so the company didn't change what prices it was offering. It was still historical market values. And so it's coming to these people and it's saying, Hey, here's what your house would have been worth pre-pandemic. Now go move, uh, but this amount of money is not going to buy you a house in 2022. And so it started off fair, and then it kind of got convoluted. But in that process, wow, there the co the company is also when someone does you know does kind of sell their their property to the company, uh, we've we've gotten a number of copies of these um, uh, of the contracts, and what they include is a non-disparagement agreement and they include a um, uh, they include a liability waiver so essentially if you go through that process if you get your home purchased you can't sue if if health impacts kind of arise down the line uh, you can't really speak ill of the process or you're not supposed to um, based on the contract so the the company is is kind of buttoning up uh, a little bit of what's going on here through this this sales process. So it's, it's a de facto, an NDA that you sign along with selling your home and to shut you up, essentially. It's just similar to the Aaron Brockovich movie. It's almost identical. <laughs> well, and, and so just to clarify that these uranium plants, these mi uranium mining sites, which are, are no longer in operation, are been linked to lung cancer as well as birth defects in the offspring of these these residents so yeah the, the the nuclear process has has a lot of nasty stuff involved uh yeah. you'll hear a lot about lung cancer um in in uranium that's typically in miners who worked in underground mines uh and the reason for that is you'll have high levels of radon which is a carcinogenic gas uh and it you know if you work long enough in these in these underground mines uh it often leads to to lung cancer uh at these mill sites which is kind of the next step in the process You've got uh, high levels of uranium, of selenium, molybdenum, nitrates, um, and oftentimes that will will get into the water. That was kind of the focus. Of what we found uh, was was often the mills had contaminated local aquifers. Uh, when you leave the waste kind of sitting out on on the land, the vast majority of these sites uh, are not mined, meaning the stuff is just sitting there in the dirt, and so it can percolate kind of into the groundwater. Uh, and so you kind of have this cumulative exposure. Uh, a lot, of, you know. A lot of these people, their their dad or their brother or their husband, you know, worked in one of the mines. Um, you know, so they've got that exposure. They've got exposure from living next to the mills. Uh, some of it's in the water, so there could be exposure there. There are elevated radon levels from all the uranium in the ground, so there's there's that as well. So you really have this cumulative exposure uh, that that ends up um, being linked to to thyroid issues, to cancer issues, uh, and a suite of things.
and and again, this is what the the water. And by the way, from your reporting, the company Homestake, as well as the EPA and the nuclear uh, NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they were aware of the links to cancer and the uranium exposure as early as the 1960s, but did not notify the residents uh, until the late 70s. So they, they knew, uh, different regulators knew a couple different things and kind of waited on it. Uh, a a, a uh, federal commission uh, that came up during the Clinton administration found that around mid-century, there was substantial evidence that radon, like I talked about in underground uh, mines, was leading to lung cancer or would lead to lung cancer in, uh, in those miners. And that information they kind of sat on for a while uh, to the point where years later, uh, the federal government passed something called the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act or RECA to, to give, uh, give some money to, to different classes of people who were, who were impacted by, by the health issues there. Uh, there are still substantial groups of people who probably should get compensation under that and haven't. Um, but that's that's kind of one side in the mining uh, at the specific homestake site. The the there was uh, the, the site was built in 1958, and by around 1960, 61, 62, the state and the feds both knew that there was uh, groundwater plumes. And another decade later, uh, the company acknowledged that at least one of the plumes of selenium was 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 from them. Uh, and then it it didn't really start getting actively cleaned up uh, for, for, for many years. And so they, yeah, they, they knew about pollution there. Uh, and yeah, I think there, there definitely are some similarities to, uh, to the government knew in, in the uranium mines that, uh, that radon was causing, uh, was causing cancer. Right. But they need those uranium for the, the cold war. Right. So is see, see I, what I'm so interested in here is it seems like we lack a regulatory agency. I know this is the EPA's job, but if you just look at the EPA's funding, it says in 2022, they had an approximate $9.5 billion budget. Now, just to put this into perspective, Barrick, the parent company of Homestake, received $12 billion in revenue that year. So the EPA, which is supposed to regulate not just Homestake, not just Barrick, but all the fossil fuel industry has 75% of the budget compared to the revenue of just one company. So it's almost as if you, the journalists, are having to do regulation for the, these agencies. It's, it's, it's definitely tough when, when you kind of get into the regulatory realm. There's, I think the constant refrain is that there are never enough uh, staff members. There's never enough money for monitoring. There's, there's just kind of never enough to for the magnitude of, of industry that we have in this country. Um, and, you know, but there are also other issues where, you know, the, the main re uh, regulatory commission here is, is the NRC. And, you know, they, they I'm, I'm not gonna act like the NRC and the EPA aren't doing their jobs at all. The mm -hmm. problem is the NRC wasn't created until 1974. Uh, the law that regulates the mill tailings we're talking about wasn't passed until 1978. Yet you have an industry that, that its heyday was was started in the 50s. And so they're kind of looking backwards. And, you know, once once you're not, you know, once you're not forward looking, once you're kind of trying to do something reverse, we've already painted yourself into a corner. And and how do you, you know, how do you put that that uh, how do you put that back in the box? Right. It's almost as if it's like these companies can 
put out a hazardous product into the marketplace. And then it's our job, the taxpayers and the regulators to regulate it after, as opposed to preventing them from releasing these products until they've passed regulatory standards. I'm, I'm just blown away by the system that we're in and, and your reporting just kind of drove me a little, a little mad. <laughs> Good. That's uh, that, that's the hope, you know, like there's, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of different extractive industries that are kind of regulated in their silos um, and that, uh, you know, have their own historical eccentricities that, that have led to, you know, maybe there's something in coal that we've just never regulated, or maybe there's something in uranium that we kind of forgot about. And, you know, my, uh, some of my colleagues at Republica did some amazing work last year uh, on, on kind of that question about uh, looking at air pollution. And what they found was that mm. the EPA would look at, you know, air pollution from one source, but, and then look at the air pollution from another source, but it might not look at how an area or community is impacted by both those together. And so oftentimes mm. you have these, you know, you have these oversights just on, on the complexity of the rules and regulations and laws that kind of govern all of this. And sometimes we need to step back and say, okay, are we doing this the right way? Do we have <laughs> the right agencies on this? Is there a way we can streamline this? Um, so everything's not kind of just happening in a silo. Yeah, right. And and just to 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 note to to the audience here that the taxpayers are the ones paying for these regulatory agencies. And I and I know again from your reporting that already this uranium cleanup has cost taxpayers one hundred and three million dollars, and the Department of Energy has stated that it will cost an additional two billion dollars to fully go through with this cleanup. So once again, it's on the burden is on us to clean up this damage that is caused by one industry. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, a lot of that, though, is, is in uranium. The way it worked is until 1971, the federal government was the sole purchaser of uranium. Uh, as you mentioned, we were trying to build our nuclear stockpile. You know, we had to win the Cold War at all costs. And so that, 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 that kind of fact of we're paying for this now is is in response to the fact that we we generally being the u.s federal government said this is something we're going to prioritize and and then you know okay years later well we created the market right we subsidized uranium and and made it something that was a viable market well maybe it's our fault to a certain extent and so the uranium world is a, is a bit interesting wow, in, in yeah. saying is this the fault of companies is this the fault of the u.s government uh, is this some, you know, uh, is this something, a broader discussion about, you know, nuclear's place in, in the world? So yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated kind of world to assign responsibility in for sure. Right. I mean, there's this security dilemma of you don't want to, if you stop building nukes, the other side gets more nukes and then they, ha they can put you in serious security dilemma. That's why they call it that. Um, but it, yeah, it just, it seems as if, uh, and this kind of brings me to my, my next kind of broader perspective here, just about the role journalism plays in our society, because I see that according to a Pew Research poll, 72% of Americans believe news outlets are doing an insufficient job of reporting. And I, what, what do you think the cause of this public decline of trust in our, in our journalists well, you, 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 there's a lot of reasons. Um, yeah, you know, big I would, where to start on that one? But you know, I would say, and and I, I come from a background of, of I used to work at you know daily newspapers where 
you know, you go to the city council meeting and you, you take out the most important, important parts of that. And then you tell your readers, this is what, you know, you didn't go to city council, you were at home having dinner with your family. Here are the, here are the pieces that impact you and, and will make you a more engaged citizen and voter and everything. And, and, and that model is, is, is dying, um, which has a, which, you know, studies have shown that with a less, uh, with less news, you have a less knowledgeable, less educated, less civically minded population. Yeah. And they're going to be more susceptible to, to things like uh, kind of right-wing attacks on all press is fake and, you know, all that sort of thing. And so you're going to have this loop of then people trust less, they read less, so there's less money. So then we need to lay off more reporters, you know, and it's, it's kind of this, this feedback cycle. And so the whole, the whole ecosystem uh, yep. of, of media is, is changing. It's the, the, the financing model is changing. I think we're asking ourselves some hard questions of, of, you know, is this really a business or is this a public service? And if it's a public service, do we need to fund this in a different manner as opposed to the traditional go buy a newspaper and make ad money by putting in the coupons, you know, for the local Safeway or Kroger's or whatever, you know, whatever it is for that week. So <laughs> there, there's definitely conversations to be had there. And, and you know, I, I'm not going to say that someone like the former president is to blame for the right. industry tanking, but, you know, it certainly doesn't help when you've got you know, a propaganda place like Fox News, right? Or if you've got, uh, you know, politicians who are just constantly instilling this lack of trust, uh, because that's not that's not how journalists, that's just disconnected from how journalists operate. The vast majority of journalists go out, they see something, they take notes on it, they write what they saw, and they, they put it out there. It's, it's not some sort of hidden deep state agenda. Uh, but when you're constantly hammered with that message, mm -hmm. that certainly doesn't help. It's, it's very uh, corrosive to the industry. And I think such a good point you, you make there about journalism is a public service, but now it has been commodified. And in fact, in social media, it's why when I came across your reporting, it was so refreshing to me because I, I said, oh, this is a real story about a real community, real implications. There's no spin here. And the problem that I just see is, the more spin you put and the more bias you can infuse, you will get more clicks and views in the digital era. But that runs directly at odds with telling the truth and informing the public. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my big issue with today's climate. Yeah, the, you know, in my view, the truth is, is nuanced, but, you know, certain stories are going to be so egregious that, you know, you you know, uh, that, that you shouldn't, you know, if you're finding yourself needing to put a spin on something, uh, then if you're a journalist, maybe set that aside. Maybe that's not the story, right? Because there's enough out there that is yeah. so egregious that tell it, tell it, tell it honestly, tell both sides of it, tell the nuance and, uh, and, and you'll get it out there. And I think the other thing I'd say on, on the kind of question of the press is, you know, what we did at this, you know, for this investigation of the homestake mills, we put all the pieces together, right? We, we did the research, uh, you know, we, we definitely added to it. But there was really good local reporting coming from uh, the Gallup Independent and other small newspapers out there where mm -hmm. over the years they had gone to the meetings, right? And they had said, okay, this is, this is what the NRC said at the meeting. This is what the EPA said at the meeting. But, you know, when you have outlets like that that are so low funded, so kind of uh, the, the margins are so slim, um, you know, maybe they're, they can't afford to have a good uh, website. And so the information doesn't get out there, or maybe, mm -hmm. you know, they, they don't have social media managers, so they can't get their, their, you know, they can't get this, this stuff in front of, in front of the people who need to see it. And so then, you know, when, when the local journalism, really the heartbeat of, of journalism is kind of local newspapers, local radio yeah. stations, 
And when that can't be sustained, can't sustain itself, then you have these news deserts, right? Then you have these companies that can, or these areas where companies and politicians can do and say whatever they want without someone at that meeting saying, sir, I think you're lying. So you do kind of have that, that news desert effect uh, kind of starting to grow as, as more papers are, are pushed out of the business. Wow. Yeah. And I just really, you made me think about just from the perspective of, let's say one of the citizens in Milan, New Mexico, where this uranium mine has impacted their, their lives. And perhaps they look out and they say, well, why should I care about politics right now or elections when nobody's paying attention to what's actually impacting my life here? And so that's, again, I'm, I'm always a, a proponent of these local stories uh, being nationalized as opposed to just the national stories hitting tabloids and headlines as, as we neglect rural communities and, and what's, the, what's really happening in this country. Yeah, and the press does have a, a very real issue of so many of the reporters and editors and everything in this country are in Washington, D.C. Or, or New York. And, you know, there is a, a legitimate thing to be said for, can we move more of the press out to the rest of the country, right? Can we do a better job understanding rural America? Can we do a better job understanding the West? Can we do a better job understanding, you know, all of these other areas? Mm -hmm. And and yeah, then then, you know, you say, wow, look at all this, look at all the stories out here. Look at all the things that need covering. Um, you know, let's put ourselves out here. Let's do a better job of it. So I, I, that's, you know, that's why I'm kind of grateful that, you know, that, that I'm on a team that is regionally focused, right? That is out here and, and you know, and in the, you know, in the area we cover. So, yeah. And, uh, and speaking of this story, I mean, does your story doesn't end here, though, just in New Mexico, because as I read, you say there are 50 more uranium mills across the country. So what does that mean? Does that mean they have not yet had a Mark Alalde cover these regions? Or is this New Mexico uh, uranium mill danger just a one off? Yeah, so this was one of the big ones. Uh, the it, it comes in an area called the Grants Mineral Belt, which goes from about Albuquerque to Gallup, about 90 miles. And in that belt, you've got six of these 50 or so mills and six of the biggest ones. You know, we're talking uh, among all of these mills, about a quarter billion tons of this radioactive, toxic kind of mill tailings waste. And about half of them have gone through the process and been handed off to the Department of Energy. Uh, in their in their legacy management uh, division, but you've got another half or so that are still working through the process, right? That are still figuring out how do we uh, how do we meet the cleanup standards, or how do we get an exemption? As we're finding a lot of them are doing, are getting exemptions to cleanup standards where you shift the standard, and then you say, okay, well now we're suddenly above what the standard is because we changed the standard. Mm -hmm. Here, DOE, we got you this, and so. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of cataloging all those. Uh, they are mainly in the West. Uh, the, um, many of them are around the Four Corners region in New Mexico, in Utah, in Colorado. But only one of them is still operational. There's only one uh, conventional uranium mill in America that still is, uh, is chugging along, and that's in Southeast, um, that's in southeast Utah, uh, right by the Ute Mountain Ute uh, Reservation. And so kind of the question then for me and my team was, well, what happened to the rest of them. If we only got one left, we got 50 or so that need to be cleaned up. And how is that process going? Wow. So, so it's TBD then to see what the effects are currently. Yeah. You know, it's uh, some of them are so rural uh, and so far out there and maybe have polluted an aquifer that uh, was, was never going to be used for anything, right? It was, it was full of salt. It was full of whatever, and it wasn't healthy to drink. 
Uh, but yeah, some of them, you know, most of them have polluted water in some some capacity. Some of them are draining uh, some of their contaminants directly into the main stem of the Colorado River. And so, you know, you, you still have active contamination out there that does need to be addressed. Not at all the sites, uh, but definitely some of the sites are still uh, are still a very real issue. Right. And I and I even saw that at the end of your uh trip or, or rather you're reporting in New Mexico that ProPublica funded some of the research and studies to detect the radiation levels within the homes because the EPA said they would not fund any more after their first initial round. Is that correct? Yeah, what we found was there was uh, there was concern of elevated rate, <clears throat> excuse me, of elevated radon levels in in people's homes around around the homestead mill. And the, the EPA had, uh, had initially come out, they had done their job, they had, uh, they had offered EPA, or excuse me, they had offered radon testing, they had offered radon mitigation, uh, but then according to their own standards, they should have come back and checked, and they declined to do that. Uh, and so my partner in this story, Maya Miller, uh, she said, wait a minute, why don't, why don't we do that? And so we went out there and placed radon detectors in people's homes, uh, because it is a very real, you know, concern for their, for their health. And, um, we found high levels in a few homes, uh, including in a family with, uh, you know, with with a, a child living in the home. Uh, and obviously, that's mm. the worst time to be exposed to any of these this, uh, these kind of harmful contaminants. So, yeah, we decided that that if we're going to to tell this community story, we want to look at it really from all angles. Well, I, again, I, I just see your ProPublica doing the job of the EPA for them, which is uh, that's it's quite a it's quite an interesting scenario there. <laughs> and um yeah so just that i guess that just pulls me out and just makes me wonder you know are journalists now having to take on such a burden as we enter this era of climate change of political instability of economic turmoil it just seems like the the entire burden of, of our nation is falling on the shoulders of reporters like you and others where we've got to get the word out a little better. Yeah, I, I would say there are there are definitely uh, different strata of society that are that are kind of uh, fighting the fight. You know, you have you have uh, researchers, you have activists, you have community mm -hmm. groups, you have uh, some religious organizations, you've got journalists. Um, so hopefully, it's not all on the fourth estate to uh, to mm -hmm. you know keep democracy going. But yeah, I mean, in this in this day and age of of political bifurcation and of just the world seemed to be spinning faster, you know, um, it, it's, it's definitely an important time for, for journalists and everyone else to, to, to be involved, to be civically engaged, to be voting, to all of those things are just all that more important now, like you said, as we face climate change and political instability and everything else. Yeah. Well, uh, Mark, we're, we're going to need to keep having reporters like you to keep uncovering the truth and uh, getting the good word out while we still can. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the show. Help spread the word about uncovering the truth by giving us a five-star review and sharing the show with a friend. We're available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and as always, I will continue to uncover the truth. The Uncovering the Truth theme song was created and produced by Pokari.